Coming to you from the studios at the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C. I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. month, we bring together national faith leaders, advocates, and frontlines activists to speak a word of liberating truth to the pressing issues of our day. Today, we welcome LaShawn Warren, Vice President for Faith and Progressive Policy at the Center for American Progress. Hello, LaShawn. Thank you for having me. So excited to have you. Belinda Bauman, Executive Director of One Million Thumbprints. Hello, Belinda. Hey, Lisa. It's good to be here. So happy. And Nikki Toyama Sito. Sorry, I almost ruined your name again. I've been doing it, you guys, for about a decade wrong, but she corrected me today. And so thank you, Nikki. I'm going to just say it right forevermore. And thanks, Lisa. Great to be with you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I'm, this is seriously, and Nikki is the executive director of Evangelicals for Social Action. I'm so excited. This is a great group. And these amazing women are here today in order to have a conversation about gender-based violence and abuse and the Me Too, the Church Too movements, and also the Silence is Not Spiritual initiative that took really kind of took everybody by storm at the very end of the year last year and now has about over 5,000, near almost 6,000 now signatures of about uh, of men, women, uh, evangelicals and allies um, across the country. And so we're going to talk about that. We'll explore this issue from three different angles. The first one is we're going to talk about our own stories and then, and our own connections with the movement. And then we're going to talk about the facts. We want to know, okay, now that we know the stories, what do we need to know in order to really fully understand the deeper levels of this issue? And then the last is how can our communities respond? So we'd love to hear from you. Um, and hear what you think about this topic, uh, drop us a line at podcast at freedomroad.us. Podcast at freedomroad.us. So, or you can tweet to us at freedomroadus. All right. So I remember the very first time that I was clicking through Twitter and I saw my first Me Too tweet. And then I started seeing them. I mean, I think I even saw that it was trending, this, this Me Too thing. And I had no idea what it was. And so I clicked on the hashtag and I just saw, I started reading all of these stories. And, you know, they're like a story in 140 characters, so it's yeah. not a whole lot, right? Yeah. But I was so deeply moved. And I was, I was moved because I knew I had a story. Hmm. And so I went on to Facebook, where, of course, it was also trending, and I, I just simply did one, like, meme that was, you know, the, like, black background, white letters, two words, me too, hmm. um, hashtag me, actually one word, me for the hashtag me hmm. too, and didn't do any explanation, just said, raising my hand, me too. Yeah. And for me, my story... It took place when I was three years old. It was a family member. And, you know, and I remember it was somebody who I, I should have felt safe with. I did feel safe with. I thought I was safe, and then I knew I wasn't safe. Hmm. And when I think about it now, I think about every single generation of my family, every generation that we can go back to, back to slavery, 
literally back to my second great grandmother. Actually, I think she's third great grandmother, Leah Ballard. Every single one has been violated, abused, raped, wow. or molested, either by a family member or somebody else. Every single, every woman in our family going back that far. And so that's my connection to this movement. I feel it. I feel it on a visceral level. Yeah. And I wanted to know, for you guys, what was the first time you had interaction with the movement, that you began to become aware of it? And, and do you have a story that you want to share? I realize it's sensitive, so only if you want to. I had the same Saturday morning feeling mm. scrolling through my Instagram, mm -hmm. and it yeah. was a white meme with Me Too, hashtag Me Too. Mm. And I Googled it. And God bless Google because they were able to tell me what was going on. <laughs> yeah. Because all it was was hashtag me too. Hmm. And it left enough, something in my gut pulled when I said, I've been on, I'm 50 years old this year. Mm -hmm. All disclosure. I'm excited about my 50th year. I'm happy and proud. You go, girl. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm also realizing that that whole front end, those five decades that I've had, there's a lot about me I don't know hmm. or I have forgotten. Hmm. Wow. So when I read the Google, this, that first, you know, whatever it was, urban yeah. definition mm -hmm. of me too, I thought, Okay, what, why, why does that resonate? I have been working with women in war zones or armed conflict who experience gender-based violence. Mm -hmm. And I have always been quite verbal about the fact that you don't have to have an experience to be able to relate to someone. Mm. Yeah. You can engage your hormones. You can engage your humanity, you can engage your soul with anyone yeah. on any level yeah. if you work at it. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's true. So for my story, I was like, hey, I'm a white Midwest middle class girl, but I, some of my best friends in the whole world have experienced some of the most horrendous mm -hmm. uh, sexual gender-based violence. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't the whole story. So reading that Me Too messed with me. I'd just be really honest. It messed with me at a, at a soul level. Mm. And the journey led me to a counselor. And that counselor has been walking me through a memory. Mm. And I wow. am one of, I am a statistic. I really am. I am concrete mm. data. Mm. Last year, the Justice Department commissioned a study of how much rape happens on college campus mm -hmm. currently. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that one in five, and it doesn't matter whether it's a faith-based campus or not. It does not wow. matter, right? Okay. One in five women experience sexual harassment mm -hmm. or sexual assault mm -hmm. on college campus. And this memory, for me, starts there. Mm -hmm. And it is a memory. A memory is faulty, but memory is sometimes all we have. Yeah. And my body was telling me mm -hmm. something happened. Wow. Mm -hmm. And it's a long road. Mm -hmm. As I remember, as you feel the Me Too hit you in, in right. your soul. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah. You, you feel it. Your brain, for me, my brain fights me every day at that physical feeling in my soul. It says, you did something wrong. Mm. 
Hmm. You asked for it. You presented yourself improperly, whatever it was. I don't even know truly what happened yet. Yet my brain, something in my brain is telling me that that was something I caused. Mm -hmm. So there is a embedded narrative that, and I don't even know the story yet. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how much, how much of that stopped me as a 19 year old girl Mm -hmm. from remembering anything until my 50th birthday. Wow. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's powerful. It has affected my life and I would be lying if I didn't say that it hasn't affected the lives of my sons mm-hmm. and my marriage mm-hmm. and my relationship with my family, mm-hmm. my mom, my dad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to be honest, relationship with myself mm-hmm. and my belief that I am worthy. Mm-hmm. So yeah. here I am at 50 on my journey, and I'm just, thank you, Jesus, that Me Too happened. Thank you, Jesus, that Me Too happened. Mm. Wow. Amen. And just to be clear, you know something happened. I know something you happened. You have a memory of something happened. Yes. When you say, I'm not sure what happened, it's because you are exercising the humility to say that memory is faulty. Right. And so you're not, exi- you, right. it's not like a, like, it's, you don't have videotape. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But you have memory. I do. And the memory comes in so many different ways. For me, I needed somebody who knows how this works. Mm. So a good trusted counselor. And I remember smells. Mm -hmm. I remember sounds. Mm -hmm. My visual is not, I I can't close my eyes and be somewhere, Mm -hmm. but I remember what it felt like and I remember what it smelled like and I remember the song that was playing. And so those are concrete enough memories for the the gracious individual that I'm working with to say, that is a memory. Mm -hmm. That really is a memory. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's not enough for me to go at. I've got a lot of work to do, Mm -hmm. but my children know and my husband knows. And they know that when I say me too, that it's real. Mm -hmm. They believe me. Mm -hmm. They believe me. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I think for me, Me Too was coming across my feed like many of, of you. And I think the thing that was striking to me was the kinds of story and the intimacy of the story that was coming. It was it differed from what is usually across my feed. And one of the things that I remember, just as I was beginning to sort of step into these other close friends who had these different dimensions, these different aspects of their stories that I actually had no idea about, mm. right? There's this, uh, an intimacy, a depth uh, to it, but also kind of a secretiveness, something that was coming out into the open. Yeah. And I, the thing that strikes me is that I was also rather impressed by the folks who just said, I am here and I am listening, because ironically, in order to do that, you actually have to say something. But because of the way that social media is, you actually can't tell who's listening. But I think that there was something that to me honored sort of the sacredness of the sharing of these really intense stories. Mm-hmm. The people were just sort of saying, just so you know, I'm here and I'm listening. Yeah. But they wanted to, I think, protect some space to kind of like, but I'm not going to comment yeah. yet. I think the thing that was striking to me was 
I'm sure many of you have many different types of people in your life. And so my social media is sort of kind of this ad hoc of, <laughs> you know, from PTA parents to, you know, old friends from college to like people I haven't seen since preschool, you know, just all yeah. sorts of all types. And I was just struck by across all of these different streams. Mm the story after story that was coming in and just sort of echoing what it is that we saw played out in the media with Harry Weinstein and, and all these other celebrities kind of coming out with their stories. Mm-hmm. So it, was, it, it just took a headline and it said, here, it is here. So. Wow. And um, I would say uh, the, the way that I came at um, the Me Too movement, um, I actually was driving down the street mm-hmm. and Despite my age, I'm actually not very active on Twitter or social media. Shame on me. But I'm, I'm getting better. Much <laughs> you to better at that. Much to the dismay of my uh, colleagues, <laughs> I am not as active as I should be, though I'm getting there. So we'll I teach you. <laughs> you probably sleep better than all of us. That's probably true. <laughs> Sorry. So I was driving, um, driving in Maryland, and I, I'm an NPR fanatic, so I was listening to NPR, and what happened was there was a story about Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. And as a part of that story, mm-hmm. there was a mention of Me Too. Mm. And so then I thought, okay, well, what is this? Mm-hmm. And in the story, it was saying that Me Too was trending. So I, I Googled, too, to kind of <laughs> figure out what Me Too was all about. And it deeply resonated with me for a number of reasons. And I'll, I'll explain two of them in, in just a second. But... One of the things that happened right after, I guess it was maybe like a day after I learned of the story and did some reading, one of my colleagues came in my office and closed the door and just said, this has been a really tough week. Mm-hmm. And I've had to grapple with a lot. And and at that moment, she, she said that she had been sexually assaulted. Mm-hmm. And she'd forgotten about it, right? Mm-hmm. She'd like put it in the back of her mind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And felt like she needed, she did whatever she needed to do to move forward. Mm-hmm. And I think very much like my culture and like from in my family, when bad things happen, we generally don't talk about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think silence can really kill you. you it's know? true. And when you don't have anyone to talk to and when you feel ashamed of what happened to you and you feel like you don't have anyone to talk to, specifically, I would say, in the church. Mm-hmm. If you feel like there is no one in that safe space that you can go to to talk about what has happened to you, it can be very damaging and I think definitely impact you for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I thought about with the Me Too movement, it just confirmed for me an instinct that I already have, which is how pervasive sexual Mm. assault is in this country. Gosh. Um, I always thought that it was, but it was was solid confirmation that it Mm. was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And my first, I guess, watershed moment into how pervasive it was was... um, When I lived in Seattle, I did this dinner for several of my friends. There were probably about 15 of us, I would say. We got together. A number of us were attorneys. A couple were doctors. Others were educators. And we were just decompressing, just kind of talking about work-life balance, the job. Um, We were very new in our careers, so we were trying to manage Mm -hmm. um, a lot of things and just, I think, have a healthy work-life balance and trying to figure out what that that would look like. And so in the course of that conversation, at some point, the conversation pivoted Mm -hmm. and the psychiatrist in the group had made it, she put a question on the table, like how many of you, I think it was in the course of dating, how many of you have been sexually assaulted? Mm -hmm. 
And there were about, I would say 95% of everyone in that group that I knew very, very, they were all Christians, different ethnicities and backgrounds, all of us in our like late 20s, but all of, all all of them. And it was amazing. Like for me, I thought this is absolutely amazing. Like some were from, you know, more privileged backgrounds. I mean, it, it just it ran the the gamut, the gamut in terms yeah. of wow. who they were and and what they did. And I, you know, I remember there were lots of tears because there were a number of of the ladies who were there who had never talked about it, and they buried it. And I thought, okay, wow. what is it about this culture that we cannot talk about? sexual violence. Yeah. And I think this Me Too moment actually provided the space for people to have a conversation, right? And I think mm-hmm. the conversation is just the start yeah. and the acknowledgement that it even happens. I think so often people just don't believe that it happens to you. And, and my best friend was raped and I walked with her through the trauma of that mm-hmm. experience. And The guy who raped her was a self-identified Christian. Hmm. She was a Christian and still is. But there was a lot of blame. Like, she blamed herself. She questioned Mm. the clothing that she wore. She questioned whether anyone would believe her. It affected every relationship after that. She didn't, whenever, she she always wanted to wait until she got married Mm. to engage in sexual activity. Mm -hmm. But for her, this experience was absolutely devastating. And so when she dated Christian men, she wanted to, marry a Christian man, she always felt like I'm not worthy Hmm. because I'm not pure. Wow. And so she carried like guilt and shame with her, sometimes believing that it was her fault. And so it took us a lot to kind of work through. And I'm not a professional counselor, but lots of prayer and just helping her to understand this is not your fault. You know, you didn't do anything wrong. And what is it about this culture that puts the policing on the woman to police their behavior and the men's behavior? And like, you need to behave in such a way so that you don't provoke the man to do something like that. I think that that's a problem. And it is something that I think we need to address on many levels, including the church. Well, see, I actually think one of the things that I'm so excited about for this particular moment in the, in our, in the world, quite honestly, this Me Too is not just American, right? It's actually literally taken the whole globe by storm. People are raising their hand all over the world saying Me Too. And I think that Honestly, it feels like a cleansing moment. It feels like an opportunity for healing because Mm. one thing we know, I mean, I think, isn't it the book of James that says that Jesus, that God actually offers forgiveness and offers healing when you step into the light. And it's only in the dark, like basically the festering, the dysfunctions, the, the, what, you know, when, when you basically keep going the same road all the time and that road always leads hmm. to, to destruction. It always leads to craziness in your relationships. It always leads, but you keep doing it because it's a pattern in your life. You can't break. Those things can't be healed until you bring them into the light. Yeah. And the ironic thing about gender-based violence is that it's ironically, it's not only the person who committed the sin who bears the shame in our society. But I think that's what's, that honestly is what feels so empowering and so great about this movement is that it's finally like women are just finally saying, this is not my shame. Mm-hmm. I'm not owning this shame. Mm-hmm. It's like shame on you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and okay, there is shame there, but shame is really 
old. So now we're going to, we can go down a whole rabbit trail here, but <laughs> shame in itself is really only, it's a lie because a sh- shame tells you that what you, you are the worst thing you've done. Right. And I love mm-hmm. what Brian Stevenson says, which is no one is the worst thing they've done. That's right. And so there is the possibility for redemption for all of us. That is, that's why I actually believe and why, and Belinda and I, we, when we did the silence is not spiritual um, initiative, why we really do believe the church is the place, is one of the best places uh, to begin to deal with this. So friends, these are our stories. These are our stories. Yeah. I mean, Lisa, can I just sort of add mm-hmm. on there? I, I think there's another dimension too of, it's not just that we're not the worst things that we've done. But there's an element that these things have been done upon, ah. and we're not supposed to carry them, right? Yeah. So that I think there's a way that for women, for women in this culture, and I can't speak for other cultures, but mm-hmm. there is sort of a double burden that happens, particularly around issues of gender-based mm-hmm. violence, that I think is particularly toxic and particularly damaging because it goes somewhere to the core of who we are. Yeah. You know, so there's something that has been put upon, and we are made to carry it in a totally different way then the person who actually did it is made to carry it. Wow. So I think that's where, that's true. you know, in the space of the church, it's particularly helpful for us to think about all of these different ways that kind of our whole self comes together in broader society as well. But I think I would hope that the church would have some space to look at all of these things. Amen. You are listening to the Freedom Road podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. Did any of you see Oprah's speech at the Golden Globe Awards? Anybody see that? Mm-hmm. Okay, y'all. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Seriously. Oh my gosh. I'm sorry to go all high pitched for the listeners. I'm sorry, but oh my gosh. Okay, so I'm sitting there with my mom and I'm watching the Golden Globes. And you know, you don't think a Me Too moment is going to come up in the Golden Globes. Although, quite honestly, they were coming up quite a lot. This was, this was kind of like the woman's year at the Golden Globes, it right? It, it really was. But when Oprah got up to get her Cecil B. DeMille Lifetime Award, which Amazing. I was like, totally like, go girl, go, you know, um, you know, I didn't expect, I didn't expect, I didn't expect her to talk about Reese Taylor. Mm. I had just been to the uh, Smithsonian National Museum for African American mm. History and Culture, and they have an exhibit about her mm. in that museum. So I was familiar with Reese Taylor's story. In case you're not familiar with it, in Abeville, Alabama, September 3rd, 1944, this young girl was walking home from church, um, African American girl, when she was kidnapped. Yeah. By six white boys who gang raped her, and they left her on the side of the road for dead. And she and they told her if they told anybody, if she told anybody, they would kill her. Mm. And then activists, she did tell, and activists from Montgomery actually got involved, including Rosa Parks. Mm. And this is 1944, way like a, almost a decade before we actually meet her mm-hmm. on the Montgomery bus when mm-hmm. she says no, mm-hmm. and. Despite the rapists' confessions to the police, two grand juries decided not to indict them. Wow. So no one has ever been convicted. No charges were ever brought against the men who violated Reese Taylor. And she just passed away in December of oh, last year. Wow. 
So I'm on the edge of my seat, right? And I'm listening to Oprah when she mentions Reese Taylor. And then Oprah ties Reese Taylor to me too. And she says, this, these powerful men have gotten away with intimidation for all this time. But their time is up. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Yes. Oh, my God. I swear to God. I, I, I mean, I actually rose to my feet in the living room and I started clapping. My, my mom rose to her feet and she starts clapping. I remember we're this family that every generation. Wow. Right? Yeah. And so I got chills and I felt like Oprah punched a hole in the universe mm. with those words that their time is up. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask you, LaShawn, what is the time up on? What exactly mm. are we talking about when we talk about their time is up? What, what's their time up on? So I think it's important to contextualize this issue by giving some numbers, right, mm -hmm. some facts. Mm -hmm. And I think the time up really refers to accountability. There has to be accountability for the perpetrators and a safe space for the people who have been victimized to tell their story and mm -hmm. tell their truth. So according to the Center for Disease Control, one out of every five women in the U.S. experience rape or mm -hmm. attempted rape, 44 mm percent -hmm. Experience some form of sexual violence. And one of the things that it's important to know is that sexual violence is underreported, mm, mm -hmm. severely underreported wow. for many reasons. One is a concern that there will be retaliation. And in the workforce, 85% of women who actually report are retaliated against. Wow. And so there is a fear, a healthy fear there, I think, for people who have been victimized to keep their situation and their story and their victimization to themselves. Mm -hmm. And among the women who've experienced rape, more than 28% of them say that it's happened to them between the ages of 11 and 17. Mm. Wow. And so for women of color, the, the statistics are even far more staggering. 43% mm. of African-American women 37% of Hispanic and Latino women and 19% of Asian and Pacific Islander women have experienced rape, physical violence, or stalking by an intimate partner. And for Native American women, they are even more likely to experience violence in their lifetime coming in at 84%. Wow. Can I just say something about this real quickly before you go on? Sure. I, I had a great conversation with my friend Andrea Smith, who was the one of the founders of Insight, which is an organization that advocates for women who have experienced violence among indigenous populations around the world. Mm -hmm. And she's, done, she's an expert in this area, right? So she talks about how there's a particular struggle for women of color who endure violence, particularly when they're enduring that violence at the hands of men of color. Mm. Can you talk about that? I mean, what she talks about is the reality that they're afraid, quite honestly. Like, it's not only retaliation by the men of color, but it's, it's the fear that they will cause a statistic. Mm, they true. will be the reason why more men of color go into prison, that's right? right. Yeah. They don't, they're trying to keep their men out of prison, but yet at the same time, they've been raped. So can you talk a little bit about that? Do you, what do you think? So I think that that is a dilemma that a number of women face on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. They want to be supportive of their community and particularly men in their culture that they know ha are overrepresented in the um, criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. And so they don't want to add to those numbers. And, and, and so as a result of that, they actually suffer in silence. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. 
And so there's a question about like, how do you address those kinds of issues? And I think it's important also for us to even posit that the Me Too moment was actually launched by an African-American woman Mm -hmm. in 1997, Yes, um, Tarana Burke. And so... I don't know that she and she actually launched that in order to address issues of uh, sexual violence Mm -hmm. among her community. And so Mm. I think that whenever we talk about Me Too, it seems very new, very fresh. But this moment has it's reached um, a peak. Mm -hmm. But it's important to know that this conversation has been going on for many years. And there's a question Mm -hmm. about Mm -hmm. why it did not resonate with the community and just the United States at large when it was a movement that was really impacting women of color. Well, I think that that's We need to that ask we need to, that question. We need to ask. That's right. Why yes. do you think? Why, actually, why don't we ask that question? <laughs> we're, we were right around here on the table. We can ask that. Why do you guys think? Why did it take white Hollywood standing up and saying, me too, for it to actually become a national phenomenon? This might be an obvious Question, but let's just speak it. Can we speak it? Mm-hmm. Somebody speak it. <laughs> I, I, I'm not surprised. Okay. I mean, I feel like the pattern of most movements mm. feels like until it comes into the living room of power brokers, exactly. it doesn't actually get traction. Wow. And so I hear you. I'm also mm. actually not terribly surprised. I'm sad. Mm. I'm sad. Why, why isn't that compelling enough? But I think there's something about these movements that when it becomes human, and there's, it's, it's easy to other people of color in their stories mm-hmm. when so much of what they are raising is actually part of a universal experience. Mm-hmm. So it makes me sad, but I guess not surprised. The story, the issue gets pushed to the margins because the people who are raising it are on the margins. And so it's not until the story becomes centered by being the story, becoming the story of those who are considered human in our society. I think I heard you beginning to go there, that it becomes a human story. Belinda, I see you leaning in. What do you want to to add? I wonder if we weren't tricked into this moment as well as, Mm. you know, when we are in a culture going a wrong direction. God's grace and compassion sometimes pulls us into places because he knows how he created us. So when you look, when I'm scrolling through my feed and I see a hashtag me too, I am not immediately aware of the skin color or socioeconomic status of that individual. Mm, But I read their story before I consider all the other things. Mm -hmm. And their story is my story. Mm -hmm. It can be my story. Mm. Now, is that right? No, but I can be tricked into hmm. empathizing with that story before my racism catches up with me. How about that? Does wow. that wow. Okay. Wow. <laughs> I feel like we kind of need a, a whole podcast just on that. But Absolutely. That, that really is deserving of a whole other separate conversation. Let me ask you this. So, so LaShawn, and actually I know that LaShawn, you didn't even get through all your stats. I want to <laughs> ask you, though, I want to ask you, how do you think this impacts the black church? How do you think this impacts the church at large? I mean, or, or let's say your arm of the church, whatever, wherever you, you center yourself in the church. So I would say from a personal perspective, mm-hmm. I have attended church regularly without fail almost every Sunday. Wow. I have a few Sundays that I've missed for over 45 years. And in that time, I've only heard one sermon on domestic mm-hmm. violence. Wow. And, where, and what, what stream of the church would you, do you call your own? Missionary Baptist okay. in the South. 
in the South. Mm-hmm. But there are a number of churches that are missionary Baptists that are now part of the Southern Baptist Convention. Okay, okay. But I've spent I spent most of my life in Savannah, Georgia. Mm-hmm. So I went to church there, and then you know I moved around to various places: D.C., Connecticut, Mississippi at one point, Michigan, mm-hmm. Seattle. I like it's. You've been around. I've been around, right? <laughs> And my retirement is suffering for that. (laughs) (laughs) Nevertheless, (laughs) nevertheless, I would say, I alluded to this a little bit before, I think it is not uncommon in the black community to not talk about these kinds of issues in a very open way, right? Mm -hmm. It happens and there are whispers about what may have happened, but to kind of address it head on is not something that I ever recall happening. Mm -hmm. I do know that there are people that, young women that I grew up with, if they got pregnant, they went before the church and had to apologize. Mm. And nothing really happened with the man who, you know, she obviously didn't get pregnant by herself, right? But again, this idea Mm -hmm. of putting the onus and the burden on the woman to Mm -hmm. sort of be, to really carry the sin, as as they would say it, is, I mean, I think that that's pretty prevalent. Yeah. I am hoping that now with silence is not spiritual. Mm-hmm. Thank you both for, for launching that. I think it was a very welcomed and needed um, hashtag and conversation that needed to have happen. Hopefully some of the churches will begin to move in that direction. I would also say mm-hmm. with the smaller churches, the resources are much more limited and there are a number of pastors who one won't even acknowledge that domestic violence and and sexual violence actually happens and aren't aware of it. Um, Lifeway did a study and over half of the ministers, one, did not know that sexual violence actually happened in their congregation. And I'm not sure that they even made the attempts to find out. But with the bigger, the the mega churches, one of the things that you find is more ministries in the black church Mm. are happening around some of these issues to actually provide people with the resources that that they need to actually heal. So they are or they are. Oh, wow. They are. They're starting to do that. Okay. Hmm. So it's getting better. I don't know that that we're there yet, but you won't see these kinds of ministries come up unless the minister actually addresses the issue and sees it as an issue. And Mm -hmm. so I think that that's something that we we definitely have to to grapple with and respond to. Mm -hmm. And then Lifeway actually did another study where they were were, um, interviewing pastors about sexual assault and sexual violence. And for a woman who was trying to get a divorce as a result of uh, domestic violence, the pastors were more like they were 58 percent more likely to investigate the claim as opposed to believe that the actual violence occurred, which is so the the acknowledgement and the belief is a significant issue that we have to grapple with. 58 percent. That is nearly two thirds. That's correct. Why wouldn't you believe somebody who brings that forward? What? What benefit would it be to oh make up God. with the social costs that exist? I, it's a, wow, it's staggering. I think sometimes for me, as someone who has not fully uh, embraced their memories yet, mm-hmm. the way that I came forward and communicated my Me Too moment was filled with I thinks. Mm-hmm. And your friend that you walked through a rape the crazy thought is, how could I not know I was raped? How could I not remember this? Mm. From 19 to 50, how could I not remember that? Yeah. But 
Biologically, trauma affects us that way. God yeah. has given us a body. We live in our bodies. And when a trauma, particularly a sexual trauma, happens to us, mm-hmm. our bodies respond. And our bodies live in communities, yeah. right? So repeated trauma, because repeat sexual harassment, repeat sexual assault is also another issue, layered, Yeah. right? It's not the boogeyman that normally does that. Our experiences, our Me Too stories are filled with trusted individuals or individuals that we were told to trust mm-hmm. that become the bad guy in the story. And so we also, along with what's happening to our bodies, we have to navigate the psychology of being betrayed yeah. in all of that. Exactly. Biologically, our hypothalamus, where we feel our emotions, shrinks. It like actually shrinks. Up to 15% of our brain, we can lose decision-making capacity wow. when we are sexually traumatized. Oh. And it's at that moment, that very moment, that we look at the woman right after they've experienced or you know, even up to a year after they experience, and we say, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? And we expect them being mentally, emotionally, and psychologically, and I would say spiritually incapacitated for them to bear the burden of the decision-making at that moment. And if it is a trusted pastor, elder, or religious authority in front of them, asking them to make that decision, they are highly influenceable. At that moment. Lord God. Yeah. Yeah. So that was me, right? Is there any wonder why we don't tell our stories so freely in trusted spaces? And Belinda, how does this resonate within the white evangelical church where where you are based? This is your stream. Like, because we know, we know what's happening with um, that pastor. Andy Savage. Yeah, Andy Savage. So like, is, is he an anomaly? Is he somebody who is actually, well, actually this is happening more than you think? What would, what would you, what do you think? Well, you know, we all like our data. Right. Well, okay. <laughs> Whip out the data. Seriously, data is data is nice and impersonal. Mm-hmm. So you know, sometimes you kind of circle in around in the data way. What if mm-hmm. I'm if I am listening to you properly? Statistically speaking, if one in three women experience violence globally, right, mm-hmm. and one in five women are experiencing it on common college campus, if women of color are affected staggeringly. Mm-hmm. Then what part of this says it ain't happening in the church? Mm-hmm. There is in a the white church. In the white church, mm-hmm. there is a logic line that is faulty when we would say, not in my church. Mm-hmm. I read the same Lifeway study. Was Am I right if I was to say that a pastor was not only not aware of how many or what type of assaults are happening in their church, they also had no plan to find out. That's correct. Wow. Yeah. They had no like plan 100%. to find out. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So all we got are big general statistics. Mm. But they are in favor of saying it is happening in your backyard. Just statistically, it's happening in your backyard. Yeah. I think it's highly convenient for a white evangelical pastor to say that is an issue of the other. Mm. That alone is bad enough to say. That's actually racist. It is. 
Absolutely it racist. It, it really is. It right. Is. Because it casts a whole, it basically says that this is only a problem for people of color because maybe, maybe who knows why they would think that, but probably it's, it falls in line with the implicit biases that people hold, which are that they are less human. So maybe they have less of the ability to control themselves, right? But actually, what if we're all just human and we are all just broken? And that means this is a problem in the entire church. Mm-hmm. And what if we're all just family? Hello, somebody. And so what about this in the, in the Asian American church, Nikki? Where, yeah. th- where's the resonance there? Let me answer that with a story. Okay. I used to work with college students, and I took them on a poverty immersion into Bangkok. And we were doing some work learning from folks who were ministering among the women who work in the red light district. Mm -hmm. So I had on my, you know, we were given specific instructions about what we should wear and all that kind of stuff. So I had really, I'm going to call it it quote unquote missionary clothes on, right? Like everything went down to my wrists and skirts down to my ankles, like just really, really conservative. But in the context of being in Bangkok as an Asian woman, Mm. I was surprised at how I would be walking around the street or on a train outside of the times that were sort of actively involved in the red light district and how the Western men would assess me and look at me up and down. Wow. And it's just, the thing that it was is in Thailand and Bangkok, there's an economic system, there's a political system, there's a social system that has packaged up and commodified Asian women for the world. And so I think that there's something that's going on, and I think this is something that I'm sure all sorts of different subgroups of women have to contend with or deal with, but there's a little bit of a narrative that the sexual exploitation of Asian women is kind of okay. Mm. You know, there's a way that that I think our military practices and some of the things that we've done have actually sort of made it okay. Mm -hmm. People have actually been a little bit socialized that actually this is what Asian women are for. When you say military practices, can you break that down? What is that? What does that look like? So the paid-for-sex services around American military bases, particularly in the Asian context, are particularly toxic. So there's a really great book called Sex Slaves in Asia that kind of traces some of the trending and some of the different things that have contributed to the the commodification, the sexual obstification of Asian women in particular. So even in this... American context, I'm dealing with a little bit of this narrative, right? This exotic, erotic, mm-hmm. uh, kind of a diminutive, she's going to acquiesce, she's not going to complain. Like, there's not the the stereotypical noisy Asian woman, right? That's not totally right. a thing, right? So there's that background that's happening. And then we have Me Too, which is about speaking out a story. And then you've got this cultural overlay where within the Asian community, and then I would say doubly in the Asian American Christian church, that people do not speak about these things, and people also tend to speak communally. So there's this interesting thing, um, I was talking with Kathy Kong about this, that the Me Too prompts this owning of truth, but it's an individualized truth, mm. you know, and, and this way of speaking out one story. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that I'm very mindful of is the way that we shape communities of people and how that mm-hmm. informs relationships and how that sets norms about what is appropriate. So mm-hmm. within the Asian American community, I think that there is some there's some great excitement around Me Too. The rates of domestic violence and violence against women and the silence are extraordinary. This woman named Audrey Lee who works in the Asian community. In the Asian American community. Mm-hmm. This woman, Audrey Lee, who is particularly kind of just trying to raise and put that on the screens of people who lead Asian 
American churches. And I think culturally, there's just a lot of obstacles mm-hmm. to that. But to your point that you were saying about, you know, women of color and feeling a little bit of this reticence uh, to call out men of color, I see that exactly happening with Aziz Ansari, right? Oh. You know, so here's this South Asian guy who mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what the race was of his accuser. Mm-hmm. She's, it's totally her prerogative to stay anonymous. Mm-hmm. But that's the conversation that's coming in. Is she a person of color? Is she white? What are the power dynamics that are happening? Wow. And all the kind of stuff. So you have this very intimate story coming out from a cultural context where people do not talk this way about things, which, mm-hmm. I mean, I, to differing, differing spectrums, but there's a, an innate privacy, I think, right around mm-hmm. uh, South Asian culture. And then you have this thing where you've got multiple interlays of power and, and all this kind of stuff that's going on. But I think the thing that as I've navigated through the different perspectives about that, you can't get lost in the complexity. A sexual encounter that somebody experiences as a violation, that's it. Right? It is simply that is it. a violation. Yes. Painting word pictures of freedom from coast to coast and around the globe, this is Freedom Road Podcast. So I want to talk about the Silence is Not Spiritual initiative. I got a call from Belinda um, like toward the beginning of December because what had been happening after Me Too yeah. um, had taken off and then also after Church Too, the, the Church Too hashtag had taken off, there was a sense that even with the Church Too, there was a sense that particularly evangelical women, but who knows, women in the church period were not necessarily knowing how to engage. There was also... People saying, how do we engage? Like, we don't really know how. So, Belinda, can you talk to us a little bit about what was it that actually led you to begin to think, okay, we need need to do something. And I know you also had some conversations in the background before you even talked with me. I think when you mentioned in in the previous segment about complexity, Mm -hmm. and I think the freedom that I found in my own personal story with the hashtag MeToo, and also with the hashtag ChurchToo, was that that complexity was stripped hmm. and it was it came to me as a story yeah when i look at the moments in my own faith walk that have been turning points have been an ebenezer a place of demarcation for me to say i grew in my jesus at that moment they were always testimony hmm. they were always hmm. filled with a narrative hmm. that showed me the face of god yeah And sometimes that narrative looks like not the face of God. Mm -hmm. And that opposite example causes that longing to rise up in me and say, this is what I'm pursuing because that is not what I want. Mm -hmm. And the reason that I called the smartest people that I knew, including Lisa, (laughs) 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 I I called about five women that I know have paid a pound of flesh Mm. in this area for decades, Mm. have been trying to break the silence around gender-based violence Mm -hmm. for women of color, for white women, Mm -hmm. for socioeconomic demographics, for international women. Mm -hmm. My intersection here is for 
women who experience violence in war zones. Yes. Which is an end of the spectrum. It's yeah. a big deal. It's, My gosh. It, it is. When mm-hmm. it is a, it, for me, it's a simplified, it's a simplified place of what we are actually dealing with here in complexity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There is a warlord who has created a plan that says violating women is how we're going to win this war. Mm-hmm. And it's stated. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. It, it is stated. Mm-hmm. It isn't, in my mind, so different from what is happening here. Now, that may be radical, but for me, the place that healing happens in a village in Congo, mm-hmm. for women there, when a warlord says, I know how to break this village. Mm-hmm. If I break the women, I will break the village. And they did the same thing in Bosnia too, right? Like in the Bosnian Wars, rape was used as a weapon of war. In fact, I think the Romans did that as well. I mean, this is, it's really, rape as weapon of war is is something that's, it's not a new thing. And it's a highly, honestly, an effective thing. Because what mm. they what do they say? If you break the woman, you do. You break the nation. Wow. And the wow. nation then becomes your tool to use. Whether it's the power they give you, whether it's the land that you want, whether it's the bodies that you need, whatever mm-hmm. it is, it becomes yours to use. Mm-hmm. When I started to breathe deeply at the thought of, wow, some of the psychological, biological, spiritual issues that my sisters in Congo and Syria are de- and South Sudan are dealing with sounds so similar to the same issues mm. that my sisters here in America, in my own, and even worse, in my own evangelical backyard are dealing with. Mm-hmm. The cognitive dissonance that, and, and the soul... Mm wrecking moment that I had was, no, I have been saying for years, violence against her is violence against me. Mm. I have been aligning myself with them. It is time for me as a white evangelical woman to align myself with my family here in my backyard. Mm. And all I'm hearing is silence here. Mm. I am not hearing voices say anything loudly enough to be heard. Now, the hashtag, silence is not spiritual, what does it mean? Like, Because I know that that came out of the statement, right? In the statement, Mm -hmm. there was a line that said, silence is not spiritual. Where has it been spiritualized? Hmm. Mm. Mm. Well, Mm -hmm. I do remember tweeting when silence is not spiritual first came out. And one of the one of the mean tweets that came back, and an, you got we've all got it. We got. I got myself a mean <laughs> tweet, and I tell you what, I was kind of proud. I got a mean tweet. <laughs> but Linda has a lot. I got a mean tweet. So that mean tweet said one sentence. It said, "Scripture says silence is spiritual, and it is for you to be silenced. Good luck with that." Wow. That was no. the response. What? Yeah. Oh, so when Chills. you know what? I got to be honest. I, the the woman that responded to the to the guy that was responding. I'm sorry, take the mic. <laughs> to the guy that was responding to me, she said, "Yeah, good luck with that explanation." Yeah, that's mm. true. So it was mm-hmm. uh, there was an immediate dialogue. Mm. There was an immediate dialogue, and if I have learned anything from strong women of color like Lisa. I have learned that provocation is okay sometimes. Mm, that's right. It's okay. Now, mm. I come from a very polite 
evangelical background. <laughs> <laughs> and so my own, the, I can feel the tension in my body. Mm-hmm. And if I can feel the tension in my body and I can feel my throat seize up, maybe that's where the silence is coming from. Mm. So is what was needed is hashtag silence is not spiritual. Action is not optional because they follow. Chronology matters in that statement, right? Yeah, that's right. You mm-hmm. say something and then our God says, if, you, if it overflows out of your heart, in mm. through your mouth, then you better back it up with some actions. Wow. That's right. Right? Yeah. Ironically, that's actually, you know, uh, historically, that's what makes evangelicals evangelicals, is that literally, at least according to David Bevington, the church historian, who said that what it means to be evangelical in part is that they're activists. In other words, it's not enough just to think the right thing. You actually have to put your faith into your body. That's why Charles Finney created the altar call. Hmm. He literally said it's not enough just to sit there in your pew like we have done for so long and think the right thing. We actually have to go forward. And he had sign-up sheets for the abolitionist movement on the altar. <laughs> so in his day, that's what that was about. So now the, the sign-up sheet is for the silence is not that's spiritual right. you know, right. initiative and also for the Me Too and Church Too movements. Tell us a little bit more about that. How did the initiative actually happen? <laughs> so I called my smartest, best <laughs> friends and asked these women who had been paying for their voice for decades mm-hmm. of saying, trying to be heard. And I'm saying, my, I am not hearing. I haven't heard your voice up till now. Why, I mean, I know you're talking, but why haven't we heard your voice? Why haven't we? Mm-hmm. I think it landed in my own body, what I said, that tension that I felt mm-hmm. of the discomfort of somebody else's story, of some of these statistics, mm-hmm. of the stories of women of color that... I have to grapple my own silence. I, as a white woman, I have to grapple with decades of being quiet. Yeah, right? I hear that. And not knowing. Mm. So actively called my friends and said, okay, I can't, we can't do the silence anymore. You haven't been silent. How do we, how do we say this? Mm-hmm. And I do remember Lisa was on retreat when I first contacted her. Oh, wow. And she broke retreat to talk to me. I'm, she I, broke her silence. She, did, she broke her silence. I'm surprised by that. <laughs> Sorry, God. And she said, this sounds like a Kairos moment. You said yeah. two things. This sounds like a Kairos moment, a moment of decision. So, which doesn't negate what has come before. Mm-hmm. No. All of it's because of what's come before. It's because of what was mm. because of the twelve years of me too, mm-hmm. and because of the moment of church too. That I see silence is not spiritual as a hashtag, as not a reaction, and not just a hashtag. It is actually the response, like the sign-up sheets on the altar. Mm. Yeah, it, it is a way for when I feel the tension in my body of my own story or of the stories of my sister, I don't have to get rid of that tension. I use it to push me towards that altar to sign. Wow. And that is the meaning of sounds not and, and so what is, what's the statement actually calling churches to do? Uh-huh. Simplicity, mm-hmm. right? Because we like to say that this is such a complex issue. Yeah. When you are just looking at someone's story, which I hearken back to the hashtag me too, Mm-hmm. You are not aware of anything about that person except their story. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And maybe sometimes, like Lisa, you first entered this. You didn't. We didn't even know your story yet. But there's something deeply resonant in the narrative yeah. that says something human happened here. Yeah. So I can. Me too. We are in the name of simplicity. Yes. And not using complexity as an excuse. Mm-hmm. Asking the church to rise to this Kairos moment, to recognize that Me Too is happening in their backyard, Hmm. to have an active plan for finding out what is happening, not just levels, not just data, don't impersonalize these stories. And the way we do that is to make safe and protected places for women to be able to come to the church mm-hmm. with their testimony, which is what leads to overcoming. Mm-hmm. We want healing. Mm-hmm. We want healing. It's taking it out of the dark and bringing it into the into light. light. Yes. Mm-hmm. And for the church to be willing, please God, to sit in the tension mm-hmm. and the discomfort of whatever comes after wow. that story. Yeah. Mm. Amen. And I think also, isn't there this, the second piece, the second call is for churches to do deep interrogation of their own systems and structures and practices that might contribute to violence against women and gender-based violence and abuse in their halls. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. And that's where my learning curve has lain. Mm-hmm. Understanding the nature, the systematic nature of racism and sexism and how they are never far apart. Mm, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think in the name of complexity Mm -hmm. and the discomfort and the tension, we so quickly look for a five-point plan. We Google a blog. Post. Somebody's got to have dealt with this before. Oh, right. What are we going to do with our elder? Do. Right, right. Yep. Tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. And that isn't where our healing is. Our healing is holding ourselves in the tension and the discomfort of that woman's story and making sure that our response is not a reaction. Mm-hmm. And it addresses what the real problem is. Mm. So we don't get to argue with anybody's story. We believe a story. Yeah. Or we can choose not to believe a story, but we better have a really good reason for why we don't believe that story. Yeah, yeah that's right. And yeah. we don't. We don't have a good reason. <laughs> Let's be real. We Really. Yeah. We don't. We, we write things off too easily. You know, talking about the systemic structural challenges, what do you, LaShawn, what do you think are some of those those structural systemic challenges that churches face in actually doing that deep interrogation work I was talking about. One of the first things that I would that comes to mind is the fact that there are a number of churches that are unwilling to acknowledge that it's an issue, mm-hmm. right? And the reality mm-hmm. is the body of Christ is a reflection of what's out in the world. Hello. And so everything that happens in the world, all of the all of the things that people experience, they bring their lived experience into the church. Mm-hmm. And so they're hurting people. And so we're, we're imperfect, mm-hmm. but we are trying our best to live as God would have us to live, right? But you have to be able to deal with, with the person in their totality and be able to answer and speak to the issues that are affecting them. And to think that an issue like domestic violence, mm-hmm. 
or gender-based violence stops at the threshold of the church door is a fallacy. Like that, that just does not exist. And I, so I think one key component really is to acknowledge and to believe the person whenever they come forward. And I think even a step farther in terms of like the, the whole um, framework of silence, I believe that if a pastor in a church is unwilling to speak to an ill, mm. that they're complicit in it. Well, mm. wow. Mm. So, mm. And, and, and I also believe that this idea of being unwilling to ordain women, okay. to not have women in leadership roles mm-hmm. in the church, has also contributed to a culture that allows violence against women to continue to happen. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, that's, honestly, that's just logical. But I actually get people push back against that and say, well, but that, well, you know, God tells us to honor women. You know, we're supposed to be the head as Jesus is the head of the church. And so our job is to honor the woman. And, and we would think that what that means is that we're going to take care of her. But but if that woman never has in your eyes the equal call to exercise dominion in the world as men do, with no distinction as to how in the text, I'm talking about the first page of the Bible, y'all, mm-hmm. that if you don't see that, then it's it's not a far step at all. It's like the next step is to see the men or the male issues, the male problems as being, well, more important than the problems of women in those churches. And so they are the ones who get protected as opposed to the women. That makes sense. I'm wondering, I mean, for Nikki, what would you say is like some of the like the top three things the church needs, resources, tools, things in order to be able to address these, in order to be able to, to address these issues? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that the church does is it tends to separate the embodied from the spiritual, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that there is there's sort of a way that like things of blood and flesh are not spiritual. And yet, like in Jesus, you have the divine one incarnated in flesh and blood, right? So yeah. I think there's this way that we've kind of like spirituality and faith has become a thing of the brain. And there's so many ways that Christian leaders and pastors kind of live out this like a disembodied faith, right? Wow. Yeah. But how do you bring discipleship? How do you bring spiritual formation into the flesh and blood reality of who it is as a, as an embodied person, mm-hmm. who it is for me as a woman whose body looks a certain way and looks different than a man? Um, so like Belinda, I think you've mentioned a couple of times kind of you're pressing into the embodied nature. So I think that there's mm-hmm. this way that we have made talking about the things that are embodied taboo. And so, of course, there's going to be no way that the church is going to have language to talk about sexual. I mean, like all we talk about within the church is like sex. Don't do it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And, I mean, and if you've got it, yeah, right. You know, yeah. Right. So, right. of course, we're stunted in our ability to do this. Right. So so I think one of the first things has to do with this integration, this like, OK, bringing the holy into the everyday. And that means really into the everyday bodiedness. And I mean, one really small thing for me, my sister's a massage therapist. And so when she gives me a massage, for me, I say, thank you, Jesus. It's this healing hands, right? This way that, you know, we we just make our faith so theoretical. Mm. And yet it's something to be lived out in the trenches and in the everyday. So that's, I think that's one thing, like separating the gap from that. I think the church is so focused on roles and rules. What can I do? What can't I do? And here's the thing that's 
kind of crazy that I feel like wow. it's playing out in society is the sec- what is okay with regard to relationships between men and women, it's changing at light speed. Like it's totally changing at light speed. Mm-hmm. The generational response to Me Too, all of these different things, right? Like these things sort of used to be okay. It's like actually and it's not anymore and that's not, that's not an excuse. Mm-hmm. So are there ways that we are giving the people in the pews tools that are orientations to how they should engage with this rather than rules of how they should behave. So right now, you know, there's what kind of... What do you mean by that? For so, so for example, what's okay and what's not okay with regard to, like, what can I wear, what can I not wear? Like, I just feel like youth groups are full of oh, these rules. I totally got that. Right? And that's going <laughs> to... So, but you're not giving... So you can talk about these rules. Should you kiss? Should you go to first base, second base? What church, you know, what does your yeah. youth group say? So it's all about kind of these rules and roles and who should do what rather than this orientation of... There is something in this person, and I'm supposed to seek their flourishing. Mm. Now, oh, what does that mean? So in all snap. of my interactions with them, how mm. is it that I can, or, or as we talk about marriage, mm. right? Like, or any intimate relationship or any intimate partnership, how are we talking about, you know, I bring my full self, not just my brain self to this partnership. Mm. And how do I deal with integrity and how do I show up and be fully present to you without den- Anyways, so this orientation of how do I seek the flourishing of another how do I recognize the spark of God within each person? And how do I affirm the amazing and unique joy that that person gives to God? You yeah. know, how do I create, like, if we had that kind of an orientation, I feel like it'd be sort of hard for us to justify some of the behaviors that happen. Wow. I have to say, like, for those who can't see the room, there's like hands raised. Truly. <laughs> <laughs> they just like, went to church. Private worship up in here. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. I mean, I wonder, Belinda, can you tell, what is the next step? What are the next steps for Silence is Not Spiritual? Sure. That Well, we've been around for a whopping almost five weeks now. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> So our history it is our history is long on this, yeah, yeah. but I you know you don't hang around with people that in a Kairos moment before good ideas come. Mm-hmm. So this is a cooperative effort mm-hmm. that is going on, and the leadership that is coming to Silence is Not Spiritual mm-hmm. is the most exciting thing for you and I, right, Lisa? It's, right, yeah. It is diverse in every single way you could possibly imagine, mm-hmm. and voices. And what is said and the experience and the understandings, as well as the individual stories that people bring to the leadership, are genuinely honored. Mm. I'll be really honest. I've been doing evangelical Christianity, and I am ordained as well, Mm. for 40 years. Right? you go, girl. Right. 40 years. And this is the first time that I can honestly say that I believe— that what is happening at this moment is a mutual experience of honest skills, abilities, and leadership coming to the table, Mm. making something happen. I haven't seen it before, which tells me the Holy Spirit has his hands all over this. And her hands. Thank you very much. (laughs) See, learning curve. I got a learning curve right there. Men and women are made in the image of God. That's where that came from. Okay. So when I look at moving forward and look at the leadership. And we are discussing where are we going? Because we've been around for such a short moment and do not want to disembody what is happening and do not want to take into real consideration what churches look like right now. Addressing systems, yes. Addressing stories, yes. We want to keep catalyzing 
this statement as a tool for churches to have a real dialogue. I got the most exciting email yesterday from, actually it was a phone call from a friend who said, there is, I won't name, I won't call out the denomination, but there is a whole denomination, conservative denomination on the spectrum, that one of their senior leaders came and literally took the statement. A Latino woman. Uh-huh. Ooh. Which I love. And fury. Yeah, yeah. She walked in. She threw it down on the table. Well, I don't know if she did. I'm, <laughs> she she might have politely laid it down on the table. And she said, I would like to talk about this. Hmm. Uh-huh. And you know what? She kept saying that until they talked about it. Wow. Until everybody on the denominational leadership had read the statement and had had a meaningful response to the statement. She walked with her co-leaders through a process that has to be individual by church, by denomination. But it was the statement that sparked that. And the phone call that I got yesterday said... We have landed on adopting this statement as something that we as a denomination can affirm. Wow. Wow. And we took it further. We have a set of action steps that we are now recommending that will address some of the stuff that we're doing that doesn't seem to be in sync with what the statement says. That's amazing. Right. Wow. Okay, hands raised again. Hands raised again. We're totally, we're having church. We're having church. Lisa, can I say something? Yeah, yeah. I think one of the things that I hope will be true is that when people hear this conversation or when people hear about silence is not spiritual, that particularly for men, that this will actually come across as good news. Yes. This is not coming out to ferret out who is, but I, I hope that pastors will actually kind of have this, aha, I would rather know what is making this huge obstacle in my church. I would rather know what is this cancer that is infecting my community and keeping the thing that God hopes and intends for our community to have and experience. I would rather know what that is. So that's why I feel like this is not about pitting men and women and who's got power, all that kind of stuff, but actually... Like you had said before, this is about bringing things into the light so that there can be healing. Yes. And a, f- and a new releasing of power. Mm-hmm. So anyways, that's where I, I sort of feel like, sometimes I feel like, depending on where you sit in the conversation, it can be kind of this, like, sitting back or feeling defensive. But I, I, f- I hope that this whole, you know, silence is not spiritual is actually an invitation to, like, Engage. to I something, yeah, to a Amen. new thing. Right? I look at it as yeah. attention alleviation. That's if right. you are, ah. if you have been sitting in a dark corner in fear that this is in your backyard as a pastor, yeah. you don't have to sit there any longer. Ah, you don't. Right. You don't have to sit there in tension and wonder. Just know it is. That's right. It is happening in your church in some form. That's right. And if you have the courage as the leadership to lead your eldership, to lead your leaders, to lead your denomination to a place where they can find an intersection of what a woman's story is and their experience in your church and the healing that the congregation can not only experience for her, but with her yes, right. for themselves, right. right? There is a synergy and community around story. So we are hoping to catalyze signatures. For me, it all starts with people signing 
reading, do not sign it without reading it. Read it. Okay. You read the statement. A lot of work went into that statement. That's real. You That's honor real. that work. Underline and put notes in the margins. Absolutely. And then shoot, shoot your thoughts off to us. Yeah. Seriously. Mm-hmm. We read it, sign it. And once you've done that, don't just sit on it. Yeah. Right. You can tweet and you can Facebook and you can Instagram and you can whatever. That's wonderful. But then print it and take it to church. And put lay it on the table. And lay, lay it on, it on the, the table. altar. <laughs> put it on the altar. <laughs> Come on forward. <laughs> it is a simple set yeah. of questions that we can ask. Have you ever, do we have anything like this? Mm-hmm. How do you as leadership respond to this statement, to mm-hmm. the statement of Imago Day in your church? Mm-hmm. How do we honor a woman who has a story and how do we protect women from not having stories? Like yeah. so we catalyze. Yeah. The conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for lending us your ears today. The Freedom Road podcast was recorded at the studios of the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C. This episode was engineered and edited by David Dult. Thank you so much, David. Freedom Road podcast is produced by Freedom Road. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that help groups do justice in just ways. And you can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. We invite you to listen again next month. And until then, join the conversation on Freedom Road.